When Jonestown came to its grisly end in 1978, the mills did not feel safe. Ever since defecting from the Jonestown cult in 1974, the mills were very outspoken against the actions of Jim Jones. They lived in constant fear of retaliation, and when Jeannie, Al, and Daphine Mills were killed in their home, a nation that thought they had no more to fear from the cult suddenly saw Jonestown hit squads around every corner. But was this the result of a hit squad or something else? And is there more than what meets the eye when it comes to this family? Hi everyone, thanks for stopping by our table of disappointment. This is How They Got Away, the show where we discuss the unsatisfying endings to your favorite unsolved or unpunished true crime and corporate greed stories. I'm your host today, Kelsey, with my co-host. Hi, I'm Annalise, and I am ready to drink the Flavorade. And our one guest today... Hi, it's me, Anna, and I'm also ready to try the off-brand, or maybe store-brand, who knows, Flavorade. Yippee! Our table has just a really big picture picture of grape flavor right in the middle. Ooh, okay. I am imagining though, we've we've all seen the pictures of Jonestown. I've seen the after. I am Are you going with this on Imagining though. I am though imagining that our table is there. Ew. Uh-huh. Now that you've uh, you you've you've put the picture in my mind, I am now imagining that our table is there. It is not a good place to be. I don't like where our table is. I'd like to change tables, but you know what? We're here. We get what we get, and we don't get upset. Exactly. <laughs> Today, I've got an interesting one for you, and it's kind of one of those. Uh, this is my second family murder. I don't know what Annalise's or Trio's, mine are families. I don't know what that <laughs> says about us, Her but face. that's where we're at. Mine is, it's a real question of whether or not the Jonestown cult is or is not related to these murders. And it really clouds the issue, as you're going to see as we get into it. Born July 2nd, 1939, as Deanna Gustafson, very little is known about Deanna or Elmer's early life. But what we do know is that by 1968, Deanna had become Deanne Rigby, 29-year-old single mother of two. It was at this point she would meet 40-year-old divorced father of three, Elmer Myrtle, at the Bay Area chapter of Parents and Partners. I could find even less information about Elmer Myrtle, even though based on his age, I estimate his birth year was around 1928, and they were married six months after they met. That's what I know about Deanne and Elmer. And we will get into how they relate to Jeannie and Al soon. So the family was described as ambitious and busy. The Myrtles owned several rental properties and raised the children, they had about four, on a small farm in Hayward. But making a blended family work is not easy. And by 1969, at least one of the children had supposedly started smoking weed. And this is 60s, 70s, the war on drugs, gateway weed. But also their children are like teen, like, early teens or younger so like smoking weed is a bit of sure but it's also it's the pickup of drug culture drug culture is getting really big at this time also true mm. this is where the myrtles cross paths with one jim jones 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 that jim, jones. jim jones the charismatic guy Ooh. he had just brought his congregation to San Francisco, and a friend of Deanna's had told her about him helping youths with drug habits. 
that's exactly what they needed. Because he knew how to draw people in. He really did. Willing to help with people that need it. They had like a whole thing with like homeless people too, I believe. Like it was like a, we accept and we help and we support kind of message. I have a little bit about the Jonestown cult here because we need it for the context. We're not going to get really into it because that would take all day. But Mm -hmm. the Jonestown cult is such a story of if you had just stopped here. We would be telling a very different story, a much more positive and wholesome story. But James no. Jones had the too much gene. The too much gene in the worst way possible. Exactly. Let's get some context around the People's Temple and Jim Jones. We could sit here for hours talking about the cult and how it famously came to an end, but to briefly sum up a very long story, the People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ, or the People's Temple as it was more commonly known, was a cult based in America between 1958 and 1978. And it, it, it's a cult. It's for sure a cult. It's not a question. Its strong measures of racial equality also appealed to many in a time of national strife around the question of civil rights and desegregation. This is the 19 late 60s, early 70s. The Civil Rights Act had just been put in place. There was still a lot of strife around that. Sure. In 1974, Jones leased property in Guyana, South America, which would eventually become his socialist utopia, Jonestown. The People's Temple came to its infamous and horrific end November 18, 1978, when U.S. Representative Leo Ryan and some journalists went to visit Jonestown after widespread rumors of abuse. He was passed a list of people who wanted to leave Jonestown with him and tried to smuggle them out on his plane. They were caught and fired upon, killing Ryan, his aide Jackie Spear, one of the defectors, and three journalists. Yeah, and here's the thing, too, is that the entire visit there, they're claiming like, oh, people can leave whenever they want, you know, you can do whatever. And so we got this list and he actually talked to Jim Jones and he's like, yeah, of course, sure. And so they get their little trek out, they go to this plane and it's like, switch. Can't let them leave. Yeah. And it was one of those, like, that's what Jones had been planning the whole time, which is like so extra creepy about it is that he was so like, yeah, you guys can leave. That's fine. All the while. Yeah, because he had this increasing paranoia about people leaving. And so he's like, oh, I see where this is going. People are going to leave me. I'm going to keep them with me for eternity in death. This effectively shattered Jones's image of a perfect socialist sanctuary, as you might expect, which led Jim Jones to force his congregation to drink grape flavor aid laced with potassium cyanide. 909 people died, 276 of which were children. And despite the media portrayal of this incident as strictly a mass suicide, it would later be discovered that there were many who resisted committing, quote, revolutionary suicide and were forcibly injected with cyanide. Also, like, they fed this great flavor to babies. Like, they squirted it in their mouths. That is, and also babies cannot consent to revolutionary suicide. Don't know where people get that idea. The Jonestown incident was very much mass murder as it was mass suicide. There were people who did willingly commit suicide, but a lot more that were murdered straight out. Sure, and you had splits of families where, say, 
the mother or the father were for this and were like, yes, let's all go together and drink this. And then one parent was so horrifically against it and was trying to get away. Like you had splitting of families in this moment as well on top of it. And I think it's also important to say that Jim Jones did these like suicide drills where he'd have mm -hmm. everyone drink. And so some people at the start of it, before people actually started dropping and dying in front of them, thought it's another drill. Which normalizes it. For sure. Just a long sigh from Anna. Yeah, I'm still thinking about how, like, people would be forcibly injected. Like, could you imagine being the one, like, injecting someone and you're okay with that? Like, granted, you're probably, like, brainwashed at that point. But... I don't know. That's just that's just so sad and scary to me. And I know that last time we talked about this, uh, disclaimer, we're re-recording this. Um, <laughs> because I know we definitely talked about this. There's, like, recordings of people screaming and being very against taking the, you know, laced grape aid or whatever. And I'm like, that's, ugh, that's just awful. It's crazy amount of footage we have because Jim Jones recorded things constantly. And so it's insane the amount of video evidence and audio evidence that there is about the goings on. Yeah. And to be clear, potassium cyanide, I feel like in the media, it has this portrayal of being this like flavorless poison. Uh, it is not. It is a very strong tasting poison if you were to take it by mouth and great flavor aid. Dang if it don't taste like purple, but that is not you you were very aware pretty early in that you are there's something in it. It's a very strong taste. <laughs> Damn, why does juice taste like almonds? That's what it tastes like, right? Like bitter almonds or something? You yeah. yeah. Like we don't like the almonds that we yeah. have are sweet almonds. Like there's this idea that people think they know what cyanide smells and tastes like, but like most Americans do have, don't come into contact with bitter almonds. You probably would not recognize the taste or smell, but it's enough of a taste that you would definitely notice it. Mm -hmm. mm. But when Elmer and Deanna met Jim in 1969, nine years before all of this would go down, they met a charismatic preacher leading a multicultural congregation whose main focus was the betterment of the community communal housing for retirees, parishioners offering to help one another for free, and their leader, Jim, claiming to be able to heal the sick through faith. All great things, all positives. Sounds great. <sighs> That's where it all starts, huh? Mm-hmm. One of the Myrtle children, Eddie, who we will talk more about later, had been a sickly child. And one day he began to have chest pains so severe that they drove him to the hospital. On the way there, Deanna prayed that Jim Jones would heal Eddie. Not God, not Jesus, Jim Jones. By the time they reached the hospital, the worst the doctors could find was that Eddie was a little pale. I don't know what happened with this. It's just one of those things. But it was <laughs> enough to convince Deanna to become a true believer in Jones's powers, and the Myrtles became huge allies of Jones and as he grew his influence. As far as I could find, Jones wasn't even aware Eddie was ill during the whole event, but I am sure he took full credit for it once he heard about it. 
Oh yeah. Obviously. It was it was obviously me. I mean, it's I obvious. as God's vessel brought to this earth to heal others Ew. saw you and your family as deserving. Yeah, I imagine like they just kind of burst in the church and are like, Jim Jones, you've done it. And he just kind of turns around and says, what did I definitely do because I'm God's vessel on this earth? <laughs> Swivels around like one of those spinny chairs like, yes, I did do the thing that you were about to definitely tell me that I certainly did. Yes, I did, everybody. <laughs> okay, that's weird syntax, but okay. <laughs> Deanna and Elmer began to move up the ranks of the People's Temple. They were known to care for temple children, and there's a story of a teen in their care that wrote letters to home, but became disheartened and stopped writing after months of not receiving a reply. It would turn out that the Myrtles had actually been intercepting these letters and giving them to Jones, who would then use the information in the letters to make the teen believe that he could read her mind, securing another member of the cult. Which is extremely common in cults to one, withhold any kind of outside communication, but two, to use whatever kind of means, whether that be pe people within the cult spying on the, each other, intercepting letters or personal things, like they use every method possible to make it seem like they just know because of God's almighty power. <laughs> we totes know, bestie. This incident went a long way to prove Deanna and Elmer's loyalty, and they quickly rose through the ranks of the People's Temple, eventually becoming the Temple's Publications, oh, sorry, eventually becoming the head of the Temple's Publications Office and official photographer, respectively. They were eventually also named Jones's Planning Commission, and Jones even asked Elmer to come with him to look for the perfect site for his utopian society, Jonestown. I think most of us who are aware of Jonestown have seen the like some of the classic photos of Jones at Guyana, like looking for Jonestown before construction was built. Those photos were all taken by Elmer. He was their oh. marketing team. Yeah, he was like literally <laughs> Deanna is in the publications office writing yeah. top 10 reasons Jonestown is not a cult, and Elmer is taking like really cool aesthetic photos of Jim. <laughs> Look how cool our leader is, guys. Isn't he so He's so, he's so cool. So, so cool. But all was not perfect between Jones and the Myrtles. Despite their loyalty, the Myrtles had been hesitant to give up all of their financial assets to Jones. Another very common aspect of cults, giving up your financial freedom. He preached a socialist message and argued that hoarding private property wouldn't be in keeping with these teachings. It would also, conveniently, make his followers completely financially dependent on the cult and Jim. Which but is that, exactly what he wanted. That has nothing to do with it. Ooh. It's all about our socialist message. You should give me your stuff. Not because, like, you know, but you should totally get to, get to me. You should give me your stuff. So everyone can... It reads like the wealth... The whole, like, was it wealth prophecy or whatever that's going on today? It's like, you give to your church and God will give you back millions. It's the same thing. It's the exact same thing. Oh, yeah. The Myrtles mm. had several properties in California because they were landlords, and they were hesitant to give up control over them. But eventually they agreed to give temporary, 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 wait, why is, that's how you say it. Why am I saying it like that? But eventually... 
they agreed to give the church temporary control over the properties as they planned to go on a trip, and the church could look after the properties while they were gone. The trip ended up not happening and being canceled, and when the Myrtles asked for control of their properties back, they were refused. And I also think it's interesting that they're so high up in the cult that they're kind of allowed to keep their properties for that long, but anyone lower than that would have given up their properties long ago, like financially dependent on the cult long ago. But because they're so high up, they have like a little more leniency. I also, you do have to question a lot of times the people who get higher up are also the wealthier ones because they're the ones that mm -hmm. are eventually going to contribute the most. So people who are lower down, it's like... Yeah yeah, I'll, gi I'll give up everything I have. I don't have much to begin with. Yeah, it it screams of a little bit of hypocrisy there. Mm -hmm. Just a quiet little hypocritical scream. The straw that broke the camel's back, however, because this wasn't this didn't push them out of the cult. This just raised tensions. What did it, however, was in 1974. At this point, Jones was using public beatings as a means over control of his flock very commonly. Yeah. Linda Myrtle, one of the Myrtle children who was a younger teenager, was hit with a board over 70 times, apparently for associating with, quote, outsiders. Some recollections of this story detail Linda hugging a friend from outside of the church as the inciting incident. So that's cool. <laughs> Yeah, as like any oh. cult leaders, like paranoia begins to like you have to up the stakes in a cult. P mm -hmm. You like people don't mm -hmm. just stay the same. Stakes get upped whether that's why you see a lot of things eventually explode to death because they keep upping the stakes and people are trying to stay and they're trying to leave so you got to threaten them to stay and then you want to keep them forever and so Death. And this was in 1974, so we're still four years before the actual Jonestown Massacre yep. takes place. So we're already, like, upping the we're ante. Escalating. Mm -hmm. To make this mm -hmm. even worse, these beatings were very public. The family had to watch the entire beating take place. Deanna and Elmer also claimed that they were forced to sign a document saying that they had given Jones permission to publish Linda. This was also common in Jonestown. You kind of just sign a piece of paper and then later it's used for whatever jones needs to justify saying oh no you gave permission for this yeah they'll just print over it yep yeah this was it for the myrtles they defected from the people's temple and moved to berkeley california and were the first defectors to go to the police over what jones had put them through they were not the first defectors but they were the first who went to the police the others had been too scared a lot of them had been lower in the cult, so, you know, they were much more afraid of retaliation. They told police that they had been tricked into signing over assets and that Jones had been smuggling guns into the still under construction Jonestown in Guyana. Many put this report as to what would later set tragic events in motion. Another reason that Representative Leo Ryan went to Jonestown was part of an ongoing investigation about claims that they were stockpiling weapons. This eventually was proved false, but the Myrtles was where this, this claim started. And that's why it was given so much credence is that they were that high up in the cult that they would know that. It was eventually proven false. So I don't know if they were told something by Jones and that was actually wrong, or if Jones moved the guns, or if they made this up to get back at Jones. 
I have no idea. Who knows? Maybe, like, Jones also falsified stuff, too. Unless just sinks, sits in thought. I, I feel like, I feel like I remember, like, testimonies about people talking about him having a lot of gun, like, stockpiling. Mm. People, like, this wasn't just them that, I think they got no, it No, but, and we'll get up. into a little bit, like, the Myrtles retain power within, in a certain way, and stay within this community of people who may, who speak to police about this. So there's a little bit of like, where did you get this information? Was it from when you were in the cult, or did you get it from the Myrtles who told you after you got back? But they also did, they had guns. At least some. It's not like they had no weapons on the property. Like, just to make that clear for people. They had guns. They did shoot them. They did. Obviously yeah. they did because they shot people with them. But there were no stockpiles of weapons. I bet you've been wondering why I've been talking about the Myrtles instead of the Mills this whole time. Well, upon leaving the, temp the People's Temple, Deanna and Elmer Myrtle legally changed their names to Jeannie and Al Mills. This was because they had given Jones power of attorney over them at one point and changing their names legally would void that power of attorney. That is how deep they were in it that they let they two grown adults with children gave power of attorney over all of their financial and legal assets to another grown man. That is also something that they use the blank signed papers for, though. God. That is also true. I don't know mm. if for the mills, if it was purposeful or not, though. Because they 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 had to use the phrase that came out of this, they had fully drunk the flavorade on Jonestown for a long time. And, and, and we're gonna say we know that the saying is "drink the Kool Aid," but in reality, it was flavorade. That's why we are saying "drink the flavorade." It was flavorade. So everyone who's saying "drink the Kool Aid" is wrong. <laughs> Can't have the brand. It's wrong. Um, actually, it's Ooh. flavorade. Once away from the cult. Deanna and Elmer, now Jeannie and Al, devoted themselves to providing support for those who had escaped cults, particularly Jonestown. The Mills founded the Berkeley Human Freedom Center and co-founded the Concerned Relatives of People's Temple members with other Jonestown defectors. So they became the sort of stateside contact for defectors of the Jonestown cult, which is why I wonder about the rumor of stockpiled weapons from what I could tell, the Mills were the first to tell police about it, but they, you're right on Elise, there were other people who mentioned it, so I don't know if there was something that Jones implied to people at the cult that multiple people heard, or if the Mills had disseminated that amongst the people who came to this Freedom Center later. Not sure what happened there. The Mills also petitioned pol politicians to begin investigations to the ongoings in Jonestown. One such politician was Bay Area Representative Leo Ryan, effectively setting in motion the Jonestown massacre. Although I want to be clear, I think that would have happened at some point either yeah. way. He was practicing for this it already. This is just how it played down. Yeah, it was going to happen. It was just a matter of what particular thing set it off. In the aftermath of Jonestown, the Human Freedom Center became stateside contact for survivors with no place to go. Remember, a lot of these people lost all of their financial assets to the church, either willingly or not. 
a lot of them burned a lot of bridges. Yep. They Some were had their entire isolated, families. like cults they like them. Cult. And they yes. were there just alone. And some of them had their entire families in the cult and now no longer had families, unfortunately. Jeannie would publish a memoir about her and her family's time with the People's Temple. Uh, it's a it's for free and as a PDF online, it'll be one of the sources. I read through some of it. It's it's wild. The, it's uh, Six Years with God, Life Inside Reverend Jim Jones's People's Temple. I do find it interesting that in her book, she or at least on the title, she refers to him still as reverend. That's just an interesting note for me. I don't know if I would call that kind of reverend. <laughs> You'll notice that I do not refer to him as reverend. <laughs> Which is very fair. I think maybe that's what he introduced himself as, and she's like, to respect him a little, but not like enough. Like, she kind of stepped him down from God's vessel, but I'm like, I don't know. He was also registered within a church at one point as an actual reverend. But if you're running a church, a cult, I think reverend status revoked. That's my opinion. It's probably just a thing where it was his title, and so she's just using it because it was his title, and it's not necessarily to mean anything in particular. One Tuesday night, February 26, 1980, a little over a year after the Jonestown tragedy, police would receive a frantic call from Al's mother around 9 p.m. She lived near the family home and had popped over for a late visit when she found a horrible sight. Jeannie was curled up behind a bullet hole ridden bathroom door, fatally shot in the head. Al was face down on the floor in the master bedroom, single gunshot wound to the forehead, and Daphine was also found in the master bedroom, splayed across the bed with a gunshot to the temple. When police got there, Daphine was still alive and was rushed to the hospital, but died of her injuries shortly after. All of the gunshots were from a 22 caliber pistol. The coroner would later add that none of the bodies showed any signs of struggle. Which is so odd, because in the way that I imagine this is is that someone comes into, like, the bedroom, Jeannie runs away to the bathroom. Like, you know, that's how I imagine it. Like, why, is she, unless she just happened to be in there when he came in. It seems odd. But she was also... Okay, one second. It's weird that they say no sign of a struggle when, I guess, no sign of the struggle when they came in. Because she's behind a door and slightly alive still, even though she's going to pass. Yeah, I realized I was being weird about that. Yeah, that, what that means is no defensive wounds, no signs of restraint. That doesn't mean they didn't, like, run for their lives or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Also, Sorry, I realized this, I said that weird. No, no worries. It also could mean that they were restrained in a non-physical way, like through threat. I think that the position of the bodies indicates that Janie either came in later after Alan Daphine were already shot or managed to briefly escape, but could only make it to the bathroom. I do think it says something either about the inability of the killer or killers to control three people or the lack of planning to ensure all of your targets are in the home. Mm. The lack of struggle on the bodies also says to me that the attacker or attackers have had had to have some other sort of way of controlling the family we know they had at least one pistol because they shot them with it 
perhaps they held the gun to one of them to control the others, or if they were someone the family knew, as there was also no sign of forced entry in the house. So the police speculate they knew these people, possibly. It's also been said that it's also been said that uh, by neighbors and friends that the Mur the Mills didn't really lock their door. It was the seventies of it all, so they could have just walked in. But there's still a chance that this person just walked into the room and managed to shoot at least one of them by surprise. Maybe both Daphine and Al. Jeannie maybe started to run, and then she was gunned down in the bathroom after that. Like they could have just walked in. Most people do not assume when a person walks in a room that they're going to get shot. So you could get at least a, one person by surprise, I think. For sure. And even if they heard, like, the door downstairs, there's other people in the house. So it's like... It's funny you say that, Annalise, because one of the other Mills children, 17-year-old Eddie, was in the house at the time of the attack and was completely unharmed. In fact, he'd had no idea what had happened just in the other room. He told police that he'd smoked a little Just weed chilling. and watched some TV. And he theorized, like he provided this theory, that the sound of the TV had blocked the sound. I'm going to get into why I think that's a little weird. As far as investigations into the house went, a shotgun and a handgun were found inside the home. I couldn't find info about whether this handgun was the correct caliber. But either way... Neither showed signs of being fired recently, and there has never been a murder weapon connected with this case. But they were both, all of them were shot with the same weapon. All of them were shot with a 22 caliber pistol. So, some theories. Uh, when it comes to a scene like this, it's important to go in with no assumptions and consider all possibilities. But still, burglary, burglary was quickly ruled out. No signs of forced entry. Nothing seemed to have been moved or taken. It looked like a come in, shoot these people, leave. Yeah. There was also, I did see, I'm going to mention it because it, I saw it in a few different places. There was also some people who said it could have been a drug deal gone bad. I think that's mostly in reference to the fact that Eddie admitted to smoking weed that night. I don't know that he admits to procuring the weed that night. Also, it's weed. It's a very 70s war on drugs view, I think. Yeah. I don't really see that as a possibility. Also, Highway a, Niner. for the record, a 22 is the smallest, one of the smallest caliber guns you can get. I don't really see a drug dealer doing a 22. I don't know. That's <laughs> Kelsey's like, the aesthetic of it, no. <laughs> that is a completely non-expert opinion. <laughs> I also think it would be very interesting if it was like a drug issue because typically, granted what I know is from Criminal Minds and all that jazz, they would go after the person directly and not the family unless it's like something more. To send a message know. over yeah, weed. because I'm just like, huh, I'm going to kill your family because you did not pay me for weed or give me my weed. I don't know. I feel like Eddie's Our opinion of, of weed is very different than it was at the time though, to be clear. But also, if it's, like, a drug dealer who this guy owes him money, why wouldn't they take things? Why wouldn't they yeah, get exactly. outside? Like, when the news of these murders broke, a nation who had just gotten over the original Jonestown massacre was once again thrown into a panic over worries of leftover hit squads. 
Defectors of the cult had long claimed that Jones, in addition to suicide drills, had trained hit squads to take care of his enemies and feared their retaliation long after his death. According to Angela Miller, editor for A&W, the Mills themselves were, quote, positive there was going to be some kind of retaliation, end quote, against them. And this threat was taken so seriously that the Mills family and several other once high-ranking defectors were taken into federal protective custody in the weeks following the Jonestown massacre. Like, the threat was considered credible enough that federal resources would put into protecting these people. Many also say that in Jones's final speech, where he indicates that he has been portrayed in the midst of people screaming in the background as they are forced to drink or be injected by grape-flavored Kool-Aid laced with potassium cyanide, uh, many believe that he is speaking of the Mills specifically as it was their actions that very directly led to the actions later. Although, once again, we all know that was going to happen one way or another. I don't blame the Mills for just trying to bring attention to a cult leader. But due to their once close, rela once close relationship, it's believed that Jones is speaking very specifically of their betrayal. Scary guy. As we mentioned earlier, the Human Freedom Center also became a stateside contact for survivors of the massacre, and Jeannie in particular returned to her activism against cults in the months after. It was at this point she would write her book, The Six Years with God, and she unpacked her and her family's experience with Jonestown and its aftermath. And with all of their work to break Jones's utopian illusion, the Mills certainly would have been considered enemies of Jones. They fit the bill. If anyone was going to get cult hit squatted, it was going to be the Mills. Mm -hmm. There's also evidence that another cult, former cult member, Tim Stowen, had been staying with the Mills shortly before the murders. And some theorized that there were cult members involved, there were cult members involved in the murder and it was a cult hit squad, but that they were going after Tim instead. I'm not surely, really sure what about this case makes people think that. I couldn't really find a whole lot about Tim. Maybe the fact that everyone in the house wasn't eliminated, so it didn't really look like a family mm. hit. I think it's a little weak, especially since none of the family members really seem to have been, like, tortured or anything, like, yeah. to ask where Tim was. I don't, I don't know. It was a pretty clean kill, considering, like, even if we have one person running away to hide, it wasn't like it was excessively yeah. drawn out. Exactly. Doesn't really make sense to me, but it was mentioned in several places, so I will bring it up here. However, San Francisco police investigated the possibility of the involvement of a Jonestown death squad and could find no evidence that one even existed, and public panic began to quell after police turned their attention to Eddie. Obviously, the fact that Eddie was home during the murders and claimed to have heard nothing raised a few eyebrows. He claims that he had the TV on, which covered the sounds. However, because you know I did my decibel research, the average TV will reach a high of about 70 decibels, and a gunshot is about 145 decibels. So that doesn't really track. But I hear, I see Annalise going, oh, but what about a silencer? Well... <laughs> Even if the gun had a silencer, according to the American Suppressor Association, the average suppressor, because that's what silencers, that's their official name is the suppressor, 
Because they don't actually, it turns out silencers are not that good and do not silence gunshots. They suppress yeah. them at best. The average suppressor will only reduce a gunshot by about 25 to 35 decibels. Even the most efficient silencer on the market will reduce the smallest caliber, a 22, which was used in this murder, to between 110 and 120 decibels. So it, it still should have been very clearly heard over the sound of the TV. And I think, no, I think we talked about this the last time we recorded. No matter what, this man has to be so high. I don't care what he's watching. I don't care if he's watching a war movie at the same exact time. He, if he completely did not notice, this man had to be out of just gone. And I don't think, like, they spoke with him that night. Nobody mentioned that he was, like, out of his mind high. He said he'd smoked, like, a little weed. And nobody, like, indicated that he was out of his mind high. So I don't think that's the case. And also, for reference, 110 to 120 decibels is between a jackhammer and an ambulance siren. So it is not quiet. No. But we have also talked about how some people think that the sound of a gunshot sounds like a car fire, like, backfiring outside. Even though it's very True, close to him. He didn't hear anything. Okay. He didn't hear anything. Although I will say neighbors also didn't claim to hear anything. So it's weird. But they're also in another house. So, so they're, they have a little bit more of an excuse. The other room, not so yeah, much. Yeah, not so much. It's weird either. Any way, shape, or form, it is weird. It's weird. The attack be being committed by a trusted family member could also explain the lack of struggle, though. Although I think there are other explanations for that. Yeah. Vis-a-vis, -vis, they had a gun pointed at one family mm -hmm. member. But it could explain the surprise that they weren't expecting to be shot at when somebody walked into the room. It's worth noting. Eddie had always been described as a reserved kid, even when his health improved. His own mother, Jeannie, described him as very solitary, though not in a negative way, just kind of like an introverted Same, kid. bro. I am also introverted. Of course, he also grew up in a cult, so that's probably going to change how you grow up, the that cult environment. Especially one that doesn't allow you to associate with outsiders. Yeah. Also, remember, Eddie was there mm -hmm. for the very public beating of his sister. Like, he was there for this. Friends described Eddie as very nonviolent and believed that he wouldn't even know how to use a gun if he had one. However, when Eddie was brought in for questioning, immediately following the shooting, so... No time to touch, be touching anything else. His hands tested positive for gunshot residue. But, according to the Berkeley Police Department spokesperson, it was such a small amount that it could have been a completely innocent reason for testing positive. So I looked into that because I was like, what the fuck does that mean? So number one, if you touched any fireworks, those have gunpowder in them. So... If you touched any fireworks, you have some on there. According to an article in the Journal of Undergraduate Chemistry Research, mechanics and those handling fireworks can produce a false positive for gunshot residue. In their study, they indicated that mechanics, particularly those who handle any sort of barium, could produce a false positive for the test they use for gunshot residue almost 80% of the time. So it's possible that Eddie came into contact with fireworks or was in a mechanic shop or shook hands with a mechanic. Remember, this is a very small sample. Like, even just touching hands with somebody could have done this in the days leading up to the murder. The small size of the sample, I think, gives credence to that. 
So no smoking gun there, pun intended. So with no murder weapon and no witnesses, we assume Eddie was telling the truth and the police let him go. They really had nothing to hold him. One year after the murders, keep in mind, Eddie is like 17, 18 when this is all going down. So he's very much a teenager. Eddie makes a rare statement. He had at that point dropped out of high school to manage his parents' rental properties. And with the exception of one brother he lived with, he rarely saw his other siblings. I don't know if there's a specific reason for that, for the children not really getting speaking. There's a couple of possibilities, or maybe they just drifted apart. Sometimes it happens. In 1983, sometimes it happens. In 1983, a probate court, which is courts that determine, you know, who gets what in terms of inheritance, determined that as Jeannie and Al had no will, so that would mean that $200,000 would go to Eddie as Jeannie's only living biological child. The other children were Al's mm. from a previous relationship. And a remaining half a million dollars was split between all living children, so Eddie as well. And so he got a pretty substantial payout after the end of after the murders. I will say that none of the surviving family members believe that Eddie had anything to do with the murders. So I don't think they think he killed their parents. The money could be related. Like there's that weird, like he's a genius biological child. So he got more money than the rest of them. That could still cause tensions or it could be nothing. Could be nothing. They just don't check. If you have rental properties, you can already rake in a lot of money because like they had a good amount of property, I believe. Yeah. So it's like, he doesn't need to kill his parents. Also true. I know initially when we recorded, we were kind of like, he's a little suspicious. But now that we're talking about this again, and you talked about how like well, gunpowder. The rental properties belonged to his parents. So he would not have gotten any money out of that un unless they gave him any. He'd still like. But also he's 17, 18. What the fuck do you need all that money yeah, for? He's just like, mm. your, your weed that you're smoking? <laughs> weed. Just weed things. Eddie left the Bay Area, or sorry, Eddie would go on to leave the Bay Area and leave the country, in fact, and wouldn't return until December 3rd, 2005, 25 years later, from Japan, where he was living with his wife and two children. Also, the distance could be a big thing as to why he doesn't really chat with his siblings. Just saying, like, being in a cult, some people trauma bond together, other people just push each other away. Also, their parents were murdered, and he was there for yeah. that. Like, most people do not just, like, Recover. wash yeah. that out. Like, Police were waiting for him at the terminal to arrest him in connection with his family's murders. So, it's been 25 years. What happened here? The cold case had been reopened a few years prior, and the new investigator believed that the forensic evidence was strong enough to make an arrest. This was not the case, however, and the DA determined that the case was too thin and declined to file charges, which I agree with. They really did not have anything. They have no murder weapon. They have, he has a little bit of gunshot residue, but as we've established, could be a lot of different reasons for that. He has no alibi and he was in the house. That's pretty strong, but that's circumstantial, not forensic. And so five days later on December 8th, Eddie was released from custody and then flew back to Japan where he still lives with his family. That's where his family lives. 
I don't know if I'd want to chill in a place after I got arrested for a 25-year-old murder. So he lives there to this day. I don't think he's been back to the state since. For my part, I'm going to say even since our last recording, I feel less sure about Eddie. On the one hand, it's really weird that you did not hear the gunshot in the other room, silencer or no. That's weird. On the other hand, I think it's very interesting that as the public is panicking over death cult death squads, the police conveniently have a stronger non-cult related suspect to look at instead. True. That's very true. Eddie should have been looked like looked at one way or the other. I'm not saying he shouldn't have been. He was in the house and didn't hear the gunshot. That's weird. But as we've discussed, the evidence against him is really weak, and I wonder if it was about quelling public panic at that point. It's a possibility. We won't rule it out. Yeah. Let's not rule it out. So there's also those who believe that the Mills were killed by the FBI in some sort of FBI cover-up around government official ties to Jonestown. You gotta always have a government one. You gotta. Yeah. You gotta. So what gives this this theory credence is that the FBI had completed their interviews with the Mills two days before the murders took place. And some believe that the Mills family told the FBI something that indicated having some sort of knowledge that the FBI didn't want the public to know and killed the family to keep it from being leaked. We'll keep our eyes on it. Worth mentioning, it's part of the case. I don't know about that. Yeah, I don't know about that either. There's also, as part of this, there's a continuation of a larger conspiracy theory that the Jonestown massacre was actually the result of a CIA mind control program and that Representative Leo Ryan's death was purposeful due to his critical view of the CIA. Now, while we say this, while we say this, there there was government mind control happening there there was research in that they were they were trying to do that that was a real thing do i think that is associated to this no uh this is a much larger theory we could spend hours going into with tinfoil hats but unfortunately i did not pick up any more tinfoil at the grocery store so we will just have to stick to how this theory relates to the bills family murders and the theory Mm. that they were taken out by the government It's one of those theories that is a case of, do I think the government is capable of doing something like this? Absolutely I do. To Annalise's point, mind control experiments were definitely happening. It would not be the first case of the CIA or the FBI getting rid of people who knew too much. But I also think that it kind of, this whole theory kind of puts the onus on Jonestown, on the government rather than the individual. And I think that people are more than capable of doing something that horrific on their own. And saying it's the government's fault means that we don't have to think about how our friends and neighbors are capable of terrible things. And those are some oddly, like, in the public view kind of people to choose for an experiment like that. Yeah, well, I think they were saying that they were doing this Jonestown mind control thing. And then they were realizing that it was off the rails and they wanted to get rid of it. And then they were also seeing this representative who was being really critical of the CIA and they were thinking to themselves, you know what, we'll just push this guy over here. That'll cause that to blow up and then we'll have two birds with one stone taken care of. I think that's what the theory theory. says. Oh, yeah. 
I could like the political Iago games. Mm -hmm. I see it for sure. But also, I also think Jim Jones was just a terrible person who did not need yeah, any help. Yeah, for sure. So I'm going to say I don't think so. FB an FBI cover-up or a CIA cover-up or whoever would have been cleaner. Even if they were attempting to make it look like a robbery or something, they, they wouldn't have left the house without yeah. making sure there were no loose ends. Daphine was still alive when police arrived, not to mention yeah. Eddie in the other room. I don't see That's that a job. making sense. It's a sloppy job. And if the government's good at one thing, Jesus, it's we murder. gotta move away. Gotta, Kelsey, you I don't want me this. on that. Move away. <laughs> but yeah, that's what we have for that. So how the fuck did these people get away with this? Um, no witnesses. Eddie, unless Eddie saw something that he doesn't want to admit to, nobody saw anything. Nobody saw anyone go in the house. Nobody saw anybody leave. Nobody heard any gunshots, including Eddie, who was in the next door room. No murder weapon ever found, which, I mean, to get rid of a twenty-two caliber, if no yeah. one's looking at you, it's really easy. You just put it in a box somewhere or dump it in a river or a lake. They never found it. Uh, the Mills family were high risk in a lot of differing ways, cult involvement mm -hmm. and politics-wise. So the murders could be For unrelated sure. to any of that. But these high-risk activities completely cloud the issue. So it could just be a regular run-of-the-mill family murder. Not that those are regular or that they should be, but it completely clouds the issue. It's really just the cross-section of too many reasons why and too many confounding factors. It's just, it's, it's too, it's too much to weave through. It's too much. I will say in relation to maybe the Eddie theory or maybe the cult hit squad theory, there were several affidavits that were released more recently that came out as part of the Jonestown massacre, uh, several witness statements that say they witnessed really weird behavior from the mills, then the Myrtles, like some weird behavior around children. One person writes in their affidavit that they heard Jeannie, then Deanna admit to being sexually attracted to children. That was in a signed FBI affidavit. That's all I could find on that, but there were several incidents where the Myr the Myrtles, now the Mills, were not very good. Yeah. They were not good people in the situation. We covered at least one story where they like fucked with the mind of a teen, and also people defectors of the cult who were in their own way deprogramming themselves from cult mindsets said that the mills still continued to kind of play what they refer to as cult games which is like a lot of mind manipulation and kind of gaslighting and like mm. he shed see shed kind of things we said this before that it takes a really long time to like people deprogramming themselves who who were purely victims and the people especially who had kind of a high-ranking role so much is normalized and justified and then becomes ingrained in just what you do day to day, how you speak, how you act, that it's very hard to then step back from that and undo those habits. Not that I'm saying that that is, that we, they have, they have blame on their hands for things. Obviously, it's not all black and white. Um, but they were also still as well victims of, of the cult, even if they did perpetrate some things. It's a gray area, unfortunately. 
I bring it up because it could relate to somebody, a defector of the cult or a survivor of the cult, maybe coming to seek revenge for them for something specific. It could it could indicate that there was something going on within the family, particularly because there was not one person who said that Jeannie had really weird feelings or actions surrounding kids yeah. that was not one person who said that in the affidavit there were several affidavits that mentioned different things or different things that she said or things that they saw her do so it could indicate that there was some piece to the family dynamic that the family that the surviving mm -hmm. members don't want to talk about like eddie doesn't really have a reason to kill his parents other than maybe a financial or maybe there was something going on in the cult that carried over I bring it up because there were many affidavits. They're all mm. online. You can find them. It was yeah. weird info because cults are yes. weird. And it only serves to further cloud the issue of who murdered the Mills family. Because I don't know. I truly have. Sometimes we'll come away with these with like a few different theories and I'll have like an idea of which one I think is most likely. I got nothing. I don't think it was the FBI. I also can't say it wasn't the FBI. <laughs> I cannot confirm or deny. There could be an unknown third party that we have no information yeah, on. Yeah, somebody, if they did leave their doors unlocked, somebody could have just walked in and did this for, like, the thrill of it. Like, that's not outside the... I wish it was outside the realm, but it is not. And so it's just, like, I have no idea what happened here. And at this point, I don't think we ever will unless somebody does some sort of deathbed confession. I don't think so. But yeah, I hope you're disappointed. I hope you drank your flavor in. Very delicious. Mind that bitter taste. Uh, cults are terrible. Don't get involved with them. If somebody's asking you to sign away your financial rights, that's a red flag, baby. That's a red flag, baby. For sure. If I hear that any of you listening win over to Scientology, I'm Don't go for Scientology. They're not your friends. It's going to be gone. Don't go for the... Okay. The Mormons. Don't go for the Mormons either. There's shit there as well. There's shit That's there true. as well. This is be our most controversial Listen. episode for the last two minutes. If you know anything you know. about cults, but also yeah. remember what we said when we were saying about how Jones had people sign away their financial rights, and then Anna said, uh, "Isn't that interesting that a church nowadays does that? Isn't that like what a church nowadays does?" And I said, "Exactly." Because exactly. Anyway, now that we've made this a uh, hella controversial episode and we've lost well, anybody who's remotely religious, yes. <laughs> I hope you have a good day. Push in your chairs. Put your cups in the sink. Bye-bye. your napkins. Bye. Bye, everyone.